don't think of a pink elephant. Don't think of a pink elephant. If I constantly tell you, don't think of a pink elephant, we're not really erasing the possibility of you not thinking about pink elephant anymore, right? We're making that connection even more salient, even if we're trying to instruct you not to do so. Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. This is a trigger warning to let you guys know that this episode at times contains conversations and sensitive material that people might find difficult to listen to. Welcome to Surviving Society's collaborative special series, episode three with the Institute of Race Relations and the Race and Class Journal. We've been speaking to contributors to the latest issue of Race and Class titled Race, Mental Health and State Violence. We are really excited today to be joined by Tarek Yunus. Hi Tarek. Hi, thank you for having me. Tarek, we're going to be talking about your contribution to this special issue, which has been absolutely brilliant. Um, And it's just such an important contribution, we feel. But your article is titled The Psychologization of Counter-Extremism, Unpacking Prevent. Tiso and I read this a couple of days ago, your article, and our minds were just blown. And we were just so inspired by your writing because it's just so clear and critical but also just really frustrated about how just awful some of this stuff is that you document within this article so yeah thank you so much for coming on the show I'm you know I'm a big fan of the show itself and uh, I guess on that note I'd like to also give a quick shout out to uh, both Manish and Eddie for the special issue uh, and for inviting me to, to share my thoughts in this special issue and if for anyone who hasn't read it you know all the articles inside are, are really fantastic. they are they're brilliant so yeah I think Tarek with regards to your contribution we're mainly going to be talking about Islamophobia and prevent and psychologization of um, counter-extremism and I think that it would be really good for our listeners, um, as per many of the episodes we do on this, these types of state policies, um, racist state policies, is sort of go through the sort of brief history of them and actually just sort of give a clear, concise explanation as to what actually prevent is. First, you know, admit that I never promised uh, clear and concise, but I'll try to uh, uphold that. <laughs> So I think it's important to think that this idea of pre-crime has existed for a long time. You know, I think this idea of prevention uh, rather than, you know, intervention is, is been sort of a guiding philosophy. And I think if we were to just start really broad, I think, one, you know, there's the argument made by Giddens that we live really in a risk-based society, right? So he, he talks about the future being colonized with threat. And so all our institutions are sort of built upon this trying to like manage the threat of the future. And so prevent kind of like it builds upon that. Prevent is not unique to anything. It's really a symptom of the times. And for those who are are unaware of prevent, prevent 
is one strand of the UK's counterterrorism strategy. The purpose of prevent as the prevent duty is that uh, public bodies such as schools, uh, hospitals, uh, daycares even, are tasked to have due regard to identify individuals they suspect may be vulnerable to radicalization, i.e. Uh, becoming terrorists in the future, right? So the whole point of PREVENT is to responsibilize the public to for them to recognize that, oh, when they see someone or something that kind of strikes them in an awkward way that, oh, this person might carry that potential to becoming a terrorist in the future, they should refer them to what's called the, the PREVENT lead or the safeguarding lead in their respective institution, what happens then is that that case file is forwarded to the police. It's stored in a police database then for seven years. And then if the police deem that this person might benefit from any sort of intervention, then that case file is then forwarded to these local panels called channel. And they uh, try to I guess identify a sort of intervention that might prevent this person from becoming radicalized in the future. Some interesting tidbits here that are really important to mention in the process is the fact that this can happen to you without you knowing about it. And in fact, I've yet to encounter one situation whereby a prevent referral was made, especially in healthcare, of a patient that, you know, the doctor told them, oh, I kind of, I'm, I'm afraid that you might become a terrorist in the future or that you might be vulnerable to radicalization. Um, so I'm going to make a prevent referral, right? As you can tell, even just that sort of discussion is so awkward. You know, there, there's, no, there's no space to actually really have that discussion without completely destroying that clinical relationship. Without any exception, all the cases I've seen, prevent referrals are made above and beyond the patient's consent, um, at least in healthcare. There's a lot more to this, obviously, than that becomes really awkward and ironic, I think. Thank you so much for that. I just want to supplement what you've just said with regards to that explanation with a table taken from your article. It's figure five and it's a screenshot from an e-learning training on prevent produced by Her Majesty's government. And there's some boxes with text in that say what you should be looking out for. It says below is a list of common phrases from people who have been turned away from the radicalization process talking about those who tried to radicalize them. Despite the very different motives, are any of these quotes similar to the ones that you thought of from your own experiences? I felt I was with like-minded people. It felt exciting. It made me feel special. They understood me like no one else had done before. It gave me confidence. I felt like my people had purpose. I felt like an adult for the first time. I felt better about myself. It made me feel part of something. I loved it. I loved that it was ours, that others were outside of it. That You talk about this in the article, Tarek, but the idea of relying on gut feelings about people prevent use this combination of um, a certain objectivity around what is radicalization or who's likely to be radicalized but it's implemented through a loads of subjectivities 
assuming that people are critical enough to understand how society operates and be able to understand if someone's at risk is just for me with no with apart from having this presentation this training it's just I mean you can hear it in my tone of voice but I'm just absolutely astounded that this is policy when you get into the nitty-gritty like you do in this article and like others have done it's just it's so shocking see that gut feeling thing I can see why the state would leverage that because it's a human instinct, right? It's it's almost a very human thing that when someone feels that something wrong, it's a human thing to think, oh, no, he's a bit of a wrong one. So I can see why the state leveraged those kind of feelings. But what I find quite interesting is the idea of, like I said to you earlier, when I think of um, a problem, I try to put it into pop culture. So when you bring up the idea of pre-crime, I think of 1984, I think of Minority Report, the idea of policing stuff, right? So... In the past, people have tried to police poor people by through their bodies or through their labour. But radicalisation, the common sense understanding is that it takes place in the mind, right? Because it's due to attitudes and ideas. So how does one police radicalisation if it's in the mind? Gearing up to use the kind of the psychological disciplines to police that. Like, how do you do that? Because potentially we, everyone in this whole world could be radicalised, Right at some point yeah. thinking radical things. So the question is, what is radicalization and how do you define that? How, and how do you go about policing it? I just want to critique your point slightly there too, because I would say that my point to Tarek just said in response to that was that you're assuming a universal human response to what is bad and what is good. And that in itself is wrong because what I think reads throughout this article and Tarek's writing is that Muslims are constantly at risk of being presented by the state as not human. And I think that is the point. And that's why, like, when you're developing this universal idea of a subjectivity about what is a wrong or what is a bad person, then hmm. you're, you're bringing to it the state's constant racialization of certain groups and that's built up in history it's built up in contemporary moment and I think that to sort of say that the human there's a quote-unquote human response yes you can see why the state uses that but the state is using it because they know that we're not all categorized as human in the same way you both really explained it really well to be honest yeah, I think there's there's several purposes that it that is fulfilling, um, and I'm not saying they did so with intent, but I think there's a point. One, we can sort of draw that trajectory in sort of the neoliberal environment that we're in, of responsibilizing individuals. And my way of of trying to explain prevent in like in a nutshell, which is probably what you asked me to do, is that if anyone ever took the train or a public transport in London, you know, you get that constant refrain of see it, say it, sorted, right? There's that constant idea of responsibilizing the public to avert some sort of threat in the future, right? And that's serving multiple purposes already and prevent, and the idea of gut feeling, what prevent is doing first and foremost is that it's institutionalizing that gut feeling. It's actually trying to inculcate that sense of responsibility into the public. There is a trajectory to that which goes beyond prevent. I think that Tiso, you mentioned with regards to violence, the idea of like, okay, how is violence constructed and then how is it sort of located into the mind? But I think there's a point of gut feeling coming from the direction of colorblindness. You know, my question when I did my research wasn't really uh, how is prevent racist? 
right? Like to me, I, my background comes from sort of looking at the, the intricacies of culture, race and politics and mental health. That's just really my interest. And so I did research and prevent. It's sort of like, whoa. So, you know, there's a huge potential for racism here, even if we just think about it very broadly. And it was really to try to understand, well, how do health professionals negotiate prevent, right? But what began as a discussion of how do they even understand the prevent duty really became a question of how how is racialization sort of negotiated in a health setting? And one way that we see it's happening, and prevent is actually very indicative of this, is colorblindness, right? And, and I think colorblindness is really, really significant when we're talking about racism in a sort of post-racial world, right? A world whereby issues of race have long been resolved. Racism is seen as something that comes from the margins of society, right? It's a sort of illiberal racist groups, et cetera, that are, you know, incredibly xenophobic. Otherwise, you know, if someone's racist, that also comes from their mind. You see, so everything becomes sort of reduced to the mind, not only in terms of not only in terms of our understanding of radicalization, but even racism and everything else. This is where psycho- psychologization actually serves as a really interesting perspective, because in a way, all these wider social and political issues are always constantly individualized, right? And even when we try to incorporate the, the political, right? Let's say if we're trying to understand racism through politics of nationalism, even then it's still like the, the whole discourse, the whole environment in trying to understand issues either of radicalization or of racism or whatever, it's always, always reduced back to the individual. There's this, there's this drive that's very difficult to resist that individualizes all these problems. Colorblindness is really significant to me just because it's really awkwardly colorblind. I mean, one, there's a lot of descriptions of prevent, but one is that if you ever go through prevent training, you know, a lot of people have been contacting me, having gone through prevent training and they sort of need to vent. And they're like, it's just so stupid. And one of the things that they're referring to in terms of stupidity is it's what, what, what I call in a different paper, this performative colorblindness. Right. So we're talking about this, this idea of gut feeling. Right. So you mentioned like this idea of gut feeling in a way the government recognizes that threat is racialized in people's minds. Like if we're going to take the public's imagination, we know that threat and criminality and all these issues vis-a-vis like, you know, national security or national order, whatever it might be, are racialized to non-white people. We, they, I think they recognize that. So if you go through prevent training, which I don't talk about in this article, but I talk about in a different one, what you'll see is this really awkward form of training whereby they'll put up slides and say, is someone being radicalized? Is it a woman putting on a headscarf? And then if you click on it, it'll be like, no, 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 it's not a woman putting on a headscarf right? Is it a man growing a beard? No, 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 no. It's not a man growing the beard, right? And so what we're seeing there is this sort of constant raising and erasing of race, right? Like it's the fact that threat is racialized. So in a way, they're they're recognizing it. So back to Tissot, you know, they're recognizing that people's gut feelings will most likely end up privileging certain bodies over others. But that function of colorblindness serves two purposes. One, they're washing their own hands, right? Because they're saying, we're not telling you to go after Muslims. 
We're actually trying to educate you to tell you it's not going after Muslims. So it reproduces that colorblindness. It then, that allows also for the psychologization, right? But I think that's really, really important, this, this idea of, of colorblindness, because the irony of it, and this is many like Muslim healthcare staff contacted me after they go through training. They're like, that's an incredibly racist experience, right? They're, they're sitting in training. There's a slide that's talking about a potential youth who's just going to the mosque. And the trainer is, is going to explain how youth going to mosques are not a sign of radicalization. But in a way, by doing so, they're actually affirming that hegemonic or that commonsensical association between racialized Muslims and threat, right? Because they're constantly addressing it. They're constantly trying to erase it. The whole thing is incredibly, I mean, it is really stupid and awkward because in fact, they're really just reproducing the very thing that they're trying to prevent. It's the same thing that if I were to try to tell you both, don't think of a pink elephant, don't think of a pink elephant, don't think of a pink elephant. If I constantly tell you, don't think of a pink elephant, we're not really erasing the possibility of you not thinking about pink elephant anymore, right? We're making that connection even more salient even if we're trying to instruct you not to do so. It also then brings it down to what is, where, as I mentioned before, where does racism come from? You know, this idea of unconscious bias. That was such a clear explanation. It's actually made me really angry. One of the things that you said is it's stupid because it's doing what they say they don't want to do, but it's not. It's, I don't think it's stupid. They know what they're doing. Like, it's so calculated. Like, it's just pure psychological state violence institutional racism in my opinion like I, I just feel that these things just build upon tools that already exist so i was reading some bell hooks the other day and like how images of black males are being fed to the public continuously that black people live on the streets you're going to be a gangster it's the same with muslims from an early age like i watch it indiana jones and the idea of what a, an arab would be or, or a bad guy or a terrorist these are continually kind of fed to you on a on a constant stream so by the time you get to prevent now prevent is just reinforcing the stuff that that's gone for the last x amount of years in your mind yeah interesting the way the state are leveraging existing tools to reinvest the idea of normalcy to present itself as the normal default setting anything outside that it should be wiped out so dissent is always an issue for the state how do i make people comply or wipe out the difference and this is the kind of ongoing practice that I see through Prevent. How do I make people think the same as me? Because as far as states see it, radicalization is an issue of the mind. And it's because these people disagree with our ideology. This is why they want to revolt or destroy the state or do whatever. It's clearly in that province that they see radicalization is the issue rather than yeah. in its political or economic or social forms. Such a good point, T. And I just want to add that. For me, even though I, I really enjoyed the article and I thought it was really clear, listening to you talk then has sort of clarified to me a few things that I felt a bit slightly uneasy about with notions of colorblindness. But I think that might be because we're talking in a very interdisciplinary way here. Like, I don't know, sometimes I feel like colorblindness um, can be can be sort of used in a way to um, excuse people socially reproducing race. What I mean by that is I think that your explanation of how colorblindness is being operationalized here is really clear and actually does speak to that sort of double-edged sword of it that like you use it and then you disuse it. The combination of the two reaffirms race. 
I sometimes think I'm kind of like coming from the sort of critical race um, sort of thinking here as well is that why I'm sometimes a bit hesitant around colorblindness is because I think sometimes it takes away that um, notion that people do understand how race works. People are purposeful in how they um, use race within their everyday life or reproduce race in their everyday life. They there is an understanding of the hierarchies of race. There is an understanding of Islamophobia. So I sometimes I don't feel like you've done this in this article, and I don't feel like you've done that. You just did that in the explanation. But I just wanted to sort of like bring in that sort of critical reflection of color blindness. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I mean, I, I definitely agree with you. It's just the type of thing that. I guess in terms of our way of being able to write and talk about that, every discussion I've ever had with anyone who's worked in prevent, there's this, there's this moral, there's this. I mean, counterterrorism itself is, is is a very moral industry, right? It's, it's it's really good guys versus bad guys, right? The way George Bush said it, you know, you're either with us or against us. Ever since counterterrorism's inception as a discipline, right? So. As a form of statecraft, it's it's always been a way uh, of really just trying to establish this line whereby nobody nobody better cross over there because that's just the bad guys over there, right? So you don't we don't even have to understand what they're going through, right? So one thing that's that that's really interesting in what you're saying there because I also agree with you. I think there's an element whereby they recognize that they're operating in a very racist industry and to actually corroborate what you said when the all uh, party parliamentary group on islamophobia uh, when they argued the definition of islamophobia should be a form of racism or that's rooted in in racism in racist logics that uh, discriminates against muslims or perceived muslimness that's that's the words that they use so this was offered, that was, that was introduced as a form of understanding how Islamophobia operates. There were leaked emails sent to the Guardian by the police chiefs here in the UK who had argued that we can't accept that definition of Islamophobia because that would make our counterterrorism efforts racist. You know, they're admitting so to speak, that they are going after Muslims and that they need people to be able to pull on those gut feelings, on all those signifiers, right, to be able to operate effectively. They're just essentially admitting that they're operating on a racist system. But you see, that contravenes directly with this moral element. These two are never really put side by side because everyone who's sort of either working in Prevent, subscribes to Prevent, or, you know, is, um, you know, is otherwise satisfied with Prevent, that moral dimension that, oh, I'm a good guy, I'm just trying my hardest. You know what I mean? Like, it, it immediately contravenes with this idea that it can't be racist. I'm, I'm trying my hardest to really just help people and just try to save people, you know? The moment I explain to them how racism operates, they check out. They just leave the conversation because it's such a dissonance immediately between what they're doing and how they see themselves. I never really articulated this point out loud just because ultimately, you know, there's, you know, there's just very little room to discuss this in the first place. But there are enough articles and research to show how much they really just bank on their own goodness, right? That we're good people trying to do good things. That dynamic you just put up there, between the moral and the race and the idea of being a good guy, when you kind of 
put that in the context of nationalism and you wrap that up in defense of this state, it, people can see it as a moral duty and they dismiss, even though bound up in nationalism is the idea of othering. So that's part and parcel of it all. So they understand the, the racist dynamic, but it's not said as such. It's said as this person's a threat to the integrity of the nation. So yeah. therefore, what do I need to do? I even needed to prevent, as we're talking about now, stop it in some way, shape or form. Especially in the UK, we draw upon, especially in the, in the most recent time, we draw upon narratives of the World War II, of that idea of all clubbing together to prevent something, to stop something. We all work together in this national endeavour. When we use the kind of idea of prevent and you kind of, you kind of straight well with the idea of the side disciplines within that context, it removes the agency of the person, but it prevents a neutral idea of this person using science in defence of the nation. And it's good for the good of us all. So it seems quite innocuous and almost common sense. But we understand the dynamics of these kind of things are not as clear cut as that. That's such a good point, T, in that connection to nationalism. I think Tarek does so well. The particularities of Prevent and the training are against what the nation prides itself on. And here I'm talking about freedom of speech and freedom freedom of expression. Yeah. And you talk about that in, <laughs> in the article. And what we come back to here is, okay, if it's freedom of speech and freedom of expression, then what are we universalizing here? We're universalizing probably Christianity, whiteness, Englishness, class, all those things bound, bound up. So it's not a universalized freedom of speech or freedom to be who you want to be. It, that is police and it's set, it is categorized. There is a accepted form of freedom of speech and there is that which is not. I, that's also been sort of the main argument, I would say. So if anyone is sort of interested in Prevent, you'll find that there's been different critiques and trajectories towards Prevent. I would say the idea of freedom of speech as well, especially sort of uh, silencing, chilling effect, depoliticization of, uh, of youth, of students, has been one of the sort of main thrusts in a, against Prevent. I'll be honest with you, it's even there, it's, it hasn't fully been acknowledged or explored, I think, with any depth. And I'll give you just an example of this, because I maybe just want to return really quickly to the whole point of the side disciplines. Very early on in my research, a young Muslim girl came up to me. Uh, I think she was like maybe 17. She told me because of Prevent, she's felt unable to speak her mind for years. That's a very profound comment, right? We're talking about a 17-year-old. We're talking about years. Right. So we're talking about a formative time in her adolescence. And it brings in this question if silencing is just simply the absence of words, which is sort of how I find a lot of discussions on silencing are often framed. Right. That people just can't speak rather than it being this sense of suffocation. Right. This anxiety. I feel like we've we've really we haven't at all tapped into that experience of silencing. Um, you know, there's this growing or emerging concept of this affective surveillance, this idea that you you feel like you're just constant, you know, your body, you experience it, you know, that you're constantly being watched or seen or judged, etc. Um, you know, I, I, I really don't think this idea of, of um, you know, beyond prevent, obviously having demonstrated that it's uh, been silencing people we haven't really fully understood the impact of that, which 
really goes contrary to everything Prevent itself it stands for, right? I mean, we're talking about mental health, we're talking about anything. It totally runs contrary to that. Um, and I think the idea of colorblindness, I just wanted to mention one thing because I, I think um, I nailed it on the head. You know, I think, first of all, you know, we know the side disciplines developed within sort of a liberal capitalist, you know, paradigm, which has seen white middle class sort of as the, as the normal, right? And then everyone's sort of trying to aspire to that, to that level of, of thinking, of experience, or whatever it might be. Um, and that's been long sort of argued in, through the side disciplines, right? Like, and I think there's an element there of colorblindness that's also really significant. I'll just mention very quickly, there's this research that was done in the 80s, uh, in the United States, black youth or black men are associated with violence. We also know that schizophrenia is associated with violence. So we saw, we can see how those trajectories sort of overlap. And there was an interesting study that was done. I'm not so sure if I actually mentioned it in this article or not. Um, that was done in the 80s, whereby they gave, I think, 200 psychiatrists. They gave them this clinical profile. The psychiatrists are supposed to sort of estimate what kind of diagnosis they would give. They changed the profiles they only change it according to race and gender. So let's say 50 psychiatrists are going to get like a white woman, you know, 50 are going to get a black man, black woman, etc. And they found, unsurprisingly, that black men were far more likely to be given a diagnosis of schizophrenia, right? And we see then the, I, the colorblindness come back in, right? Because there really, there's this element of violence and all this, but the side disciplines have been very effective. Um, you know, as a form of statecraft, of of really acknowledging the centrality of how racism uh, continues to operate. Um, and I really, I always want to emphasize that point because so many people among this, like psych professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists, they truly believe that psychology is an apolitical discipline, right? That it's neutral the way, exactly the way Tissot was mentioning, right? That there's this universalism to it. We're all exactly the same according to our psychological configuration when it's not. And as others have argued, really that sort of thinking just shows how side disciplines have been very good at maintaining the status quo, right? So in a way, they are politically engineering people to adhere to the status quo of society. And that status quo, as we know, is obviously increasingly uh, or has always been racist, but now is even increasingly overtly racist as well. We're sitting in the talking about radicalization and talking about ideas, basically, how prevent trying to police ideas. Now, how do you go about policing an idea? Because most of Western history is about radicalization, right? So we talk about America, we talk about the, the French Revolution, radical ideas. This was this is the foundation myths of, of the West, right? Radicalization up until the nineteenth century. But it becomes problematic now when we get to a point where the state seems to have consolidated power. It's what ideas disrupt business as usual. What I've kind of seen in a, in the most recent discourse, new person that's been sucked in is Black Lives Matter idea that seems to be a kind of anti the state. Even though it's not put across like that, but these are the kind of ideas that are seen as being dangerous now, or Marxist ideas have come back to be seen as dangerous. A hegemonic notion of normality that exists that no one no one acknowledges, but we know it exists. 
yes, like the history of society is a history of radical ideas. It's always interesting as to which ideas become normalised. And obviously we know those ideas are the ones that have been the most oppressive and violent and created and maintained nation states, all that stuff. So I think that what you're saying, T, is that actually prevent and then looking at how state the state controls it and operationalizes it is consistent throughout history and with controlling people. But also, I think that it's really important to look at how ideas become racialized or how ways of being, how culture becomes racialized and how that becomes something which is used. So I have to come back to the sort of anecdote you were talking about, Tarek, because I'm not going to lie, like, yeah, I have to just wipe her tear away but listening to you talk about the 17 year old girl like that notion of silencing like be not being able to speak again coming back to Tiso's point just then about the history of ideas the history of radical ideas the history of change who gets to be part of that yeah and I don't know it just made me really sad and it made me feel like I need to like I we get to run this podcast talk about um all these things in a very critical way and there's just so many people even that sort of live around the corner from us that aren't able to do that in the way that we are so it just really yeah just hit home a bit to be honest i live in a big estate they voluntarily had to take on prevent so my my state it's like i don't know i'd say a majority bengali and they had to voluntarily take on the prevent strategy. So for the for the first time, these kids here, that there's a, an actual, what almost ever present threat of the state in your actual life of just thinking certain things or people thinking you're thinking certain things. So you don't even yeah. know if you're thinking it. Someone has to think that you're thinking it, and the state will be involved. So that kind of turns out into the fact that my mum, who starts enforcing something that's clearly quite racist, the police start enforcing it and you see this kind of build-up of pressure. What happens in real terms is that people just do the complete opposite of what prevents meant to do. So these kids who might not have been radicalised, they might have been thinking like things we all think of, but don't act on them, start thinking, well, you're criminalising the way I think anyway, so why not? And yeah. it's quite weird to see this in action, you know? Yeah, it's really terrifying, I think, where things are going. I'll just mention, I'll play devil's advocate because I think the state w- won't say that they're trying to surveil people's minds and thoughts, right? And in a way, what they end up doing, you know, someone, let's say if someone was a prevent official right now, they would come in and say, no, so you're wrong. It's not about people's thoughts. It's also about people's relationships. It's about people's experiences. You know, they're going to uh, broaden and out in a way there's some legitimacy to that, only to the point where, um, you know, people get caught up in the security net through guilt by association, right? So it doesn't matter even what they were thinking, right? It just happens to be that they're black or brown associated with someone else who's black or brown who thought that. You see what I mean? And so there's different, hmm. and I, in fact, there's a there, there's a case example that's happening right now in Denmark, um, which I, I can't talk about in detail, but it's exactly that, like. The site of intervention, which is really the point of psychologization, is, is still back to the individual, right? Because that's that's what that's the state's privilege at that point, right? The state is not going to give up its sovereignty. It's not going to give up anything, right? It's going to try to complicate it to say, oh no, 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 you know, we're not trying to we're not trying to man- manage the way people think. 
But the true violence comes to the point that, you know, at the end of the day, they have all the power to say, let's let's always work on the individual. Right. We can pull the individual away from that gang. We can pull the individual away from that relationship. We can ideologically reprogram that individual if we have to. We can do this and that and that to the individual. There's so much to be said about how how bad that's been. But that doesn't take away from the idea of that that virus, you know, which I mentioned in the article as well. You know, I think at mm-hmm. the end, ultimately, there, there's a history to that, by the way, which we haven't mentioned. I'm just going to mention it very, very briefly, because I think this this history we don't often talk about when we talk about Islamophobia. Like, how does the state talk about Islamophobia? You know, let's think about how, like, Prevent talks about Islamophobia. Prevent will talk about Islamophobia as, like, it coming through uh, media representations of bad Muslims, right? They're going to, like, maybe blame it on the Telegraph. They'll blame it on whatever. This idea of bad ideas. Okay, what counts as good or a bad idea? There's a history, the history of fanaticism in, in Western literature. The Muslim figure has always played a central role. And I'm talking about hundreds of years. You know, the idea of the monster, the idea of fanaticism, intransigence, right? Like this hard-headedness, you know, that impulsivity towards violence. That has played a very, very significant role um, in this whole trope between the West versus the rest, right? In, In sort of Orientalism, Imperialism, and being able to define that that boundary between sort of the the modern liberal west versus the sort of illiberal rest of the world um and the muslim figure has figured really centrally in that right like we know that fanaticism and like bad ideas have largely been associated like fanaticism towards violence has largely been a construction of the west about the muslim you know and there there's there's um, a book I'm reading right now, um, which is really, it's sort of, it, it just happens to be a great book, I think, to read during COVID as well, um, called uh, Epidemic Empire. It's not out yet, but it talks about this idea of uh, the construction of sort of Muslims as like the, the sort of ep- the epidemic of terrorism, you know, like there's this virus going around and how that's always been very uh, central to the sort of, to the construction of empire. I, I sort of wanted to just maybe unpack that, but also bring it back to, yes, like they're never going to get away from this idea of the virus because it's just, it's always been so central to Western history itself that sees itself as like rational versus the irrational sort of viruses that are spreading elsewhere. Building upon what you just said from your article about viruses. Yeah. So it almost seems like political ideas are seen as viruses and certain people because um, prevent settings and mindset are susceptible to certain kind of viruses. Western medical way of, of dealing with a virus is to exercise what's ill or bad. So to take it out of something. So the idea of someone having a virus and the idea of contagion. So by association, yeah. me being next to this person who has this virus, it means that I'm, I'm potentially at risk. The logic of it, I can see the logics of it all, but it creates a currency that, again, the hegemonic notion of what's normal. Certain ideologies are outside the remit of Western liberal democracies. So, for example, Islamophobia is out, but somehow, oddly enough, fascism sits in there because yeah. it's protected almost. Like, people speak about it, people talk about it, political parties adopt bits of it, but it's never out of the discussion. So 
if that's the case, if prevents about uh, exercising radical viewpoints. So if we if you think about it on the most basic idea of a superficial superficial idea of a spectrum of ideas and fascism or Islam uh, at the end of the spectrums, how comes one is definitely excluded and one is kind of sits in? But there is also also a kind of get out clause to say if someone is a fascist, we can exclude that one person, but not the actual idea. I mean that's exactly the issue here, and I think it's the idea that what we see with prevent. What seems to be clear, and again, there's not that much research being done because in a way we don't have access to all the case files and everything. But, you know, when a white person gets referred to prevent, in my readings, they often get referred to prevent because they've already showed behaviors of subscribing to like a fascist group. You know, they're already there. They're already there. It's it's not that there's any sort of potential of virus, whatever, whatever it might be. You know, they're already sort of talking about the English Defense League or whatever it might be, right? Which is why mm. I've always made the argument because people keep coming back to me <laughs> and saying, well, how, how can it be racist when white people are getting referred to prevent? I'm like, just because a white person gets caught in a system doesn't, make it, doesn't mean it's not racist, right? Because it just means that his body was not sufficient in being a factor in the referral system, right? He had to show something else besides just showing up with his body. He had to actually speak about joining the English Defense League. You know, he actually had to go that far, right? So it's not about the idea then at that point. It's actually, you know, far more a question of, okay, this person has shown certain behaviors. Because honestly, at that point, what we're seeing right now is potentially exactly the way you're explaining it, given that threat is racialized, you know? So now Muslims are trying to associate with mental health. Now we're potentially entering... Uh, and we are, we, we have entered a time whereby Muslims now who show mental illness or suffering, whatever it might be in any way, shape or form, you know, might potentially be referred to, to counterterrorism, right? To like a mental health hub, right? Because to sort of prevent what they could potentially become in the future. But if that if that was truly equal, it's society, right? I mean, how many people would be refer to counterterrorism, right? Tarek, that was absolutely brilliant. Like I can imagine so many of the listeners now want to just carry on hearing you speak about this because it's so thoughtful, it's so critical, it's so informed as well, um, which is what we love on this show. And thank you so much for coming on. Check out the episode notes and more of Tarek's work. And yes, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Patrons, got another episode coming up for you. <laughs> Listeners, thanks for all your support and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing.